good morning. Happy Mother's Day, moms, grandmas, aunts, future moms, stepmoms, spiritual moms. We are so excited to celebrate Mother's Day with you this morning. But we also know that this Mother's Day is weird, and it's hard, and it's different in a lot of ways. A lot of families are separated today on Mother's Day. Families are grieving. Families are struggling. And we know it's not a Mother's Day like we've had in a very, very long time. And our church is here for you. We're here with you. And we want to be a part of this day with you. Um, I miss simple things that my family always does on Mother's Day that we can't do today. I hate the fact that I can't watch a baseball game today. Baseball has been a huge part of my life. And it's always been a part of our summer rhythms. And when I was a kid, my family would celebrate opening day like it was a holiday. No matter what was going on in our life, no matter what we were doing, we would always make time to attend the first baseball game of the season. And one year, the local TV station decided to do a story on who sits in the seats the farthest away from home plate. And so they trucked this massive camera crew up all the stairs to the farthest seat from home plate. But when they got there, their story quickly switched from who sits in these seats to my mom's purse. Because when they got there, who they found was the four of us. And they were fascinated by my mom's baseball purse. So you could bring a bag in a certain size and put as much stuff as you could in that bag that certain size. And my mother had the ability to pack more snacks of high quality and quantity into one bag than any person on earth. And the news story decided to do their entire story on my mom's baseball purse. And see, opening day was a rhythm in our life. We did it every single year. And in scripture, we see God instructing us to have these similar rhythms about spiritual things that God desires for us to stop and pause and celebrate as part of our yearly cycle. And in the book of Luke, we see a 12-year-old Jesus and his family participating in one of these yearly celebrations. And in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, it says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the Passover feast. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to custom. So we see his family leaving Nazareth where they lived, trekking to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the book of Exodus tells us what the Passover is. This is a yearly celebration that God instructed his people to celebrate year after year after year to commemorate how he delivered and rescued and saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the story of God rescuing his people out of slavery can be found in Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 11, God tells Pharaoh that the firstborn of every household in Egypt will die. So in Exodus chapter 11, God says, all the firstborn are going to die. And then in chapter 12, God comes to his people and says, but not you, not my people. You will be passed over if you do the things that I tell you. And so here we find Genesis 11, God saying all the firstborns will be killed. The beginning of chapter 12, God lays out the instructions for his people of how they are to be passed over. 
And then in the middle part of chapter 12, God goes into an incredibly detailed guidelines and instructions for how his people are to celebrate this Passover for generations to come. And so he's laying this out, and it's incredibly specific how you will celebrate, when you will celebrate, where you will celebrate, what you will eat. And God lays out all these instructions for this yearly celebration of the Passover. And again, this is in the middle of Exodus chapter 12. But see, here's the crazy thing about it God doesn't save a single soul until the end of chapter 12. God comes in just like he said he would, and he saves the firstborn of his people. But that doesn't happen until after he lays out this massive list of how they're to celebrate it. And he's telling Moses, who's writing it down, and at no point does Moses raise his hand and say, God, shouldn't, shouldn't we wait until we make sure that this works? Shouldn't we wait until you save us? before we spend all this time talking about how we're going to celebrate it. But Moses never does that. He just writes it down faithfully because he knows that his God is going to do what he said he will do. And at no point does he hesitate to write down for generations to come how they will celebrate this Passover before it even happened. And the very first thing that we can learn from a 12-year-old Jesus and his family going to celebrate Passover every single year is that we can live expectantly, that we can live with the promise that God will do what God says he's going to do, that we can celebrate it, plan how to celebrate it before it even happens. That God desires for us to live boldly and live expectantly. And that when we come into his presence, we can expect for him to teach us something. When we come into worship with him, we can expect him to meet us. When our life is falling apart, when we're struggling, when we're in slavery, when we're being tortured like the, like the Egyptians were to God's people we can expect that he will deliver us. So Luke chapter 2 teaches us first and foremost to live expectantly. It also teaches us to celebrate what God does. It says in this passage that Jesus and his family went every single year, that this rhythm of celebrating the Passover was part of their life. God wants us to be people that live expectantly but celebrate when he shows up. That God wants us to have these rhythms of being reminded of how he redeemed and rescued. And when we do celebrate when God shows up, it helps us to be reminded that we can live expectantly because he's done it before and he'll do it again. When Daniel and I were first married, he picked out our first apartment without me. It had a very uh, Shawshank vibe going on. And when we were first married, we didn't have a lot. And I remember one time we were sitting in our kitchen slash dining room slash living room praying and thinking about how we were going to pay our bills. And it was this tense moment of not having enough. And as we sat in this room, an envelope came flying under our door. And in this envelope was the exact amount of money we needed 
to pay whatever bill we were thinking about. And in that moment, we knew in an instant that God had led someone to slip that envelope under our door. And in the years since, I have seen God bless our family and rescue our family and show up from our family time and time again. And every time it happens, I say, it's an envelope under the door moment. And that we never forget where God shows up so we can expect him to do it again. And the way that we cannot forget is to make it a habit to celebrate it. We are hearing story after story of people who God is coming in to this nightmare season and rescuing them in powerful ways. And I would encourage you, if you are experiencing that, plan how you're going to celebrate it. Next year, what are you going to do to celebrate what God did this year? And this pattern will help us live expectantly and celebrate what God does. But we also see in the 12-year-old Jesus, a family that gave God their best. See, these very specific things that God told his family to do to celebrate the Passover, Jesus' family took it a step further. See, entire families weren't required to come to Jerusalem, but Jesus' family did. Kids under the age of 13, they also weren't required to go, but a 12-year-old Jesus showed up. And this shows us that this family wanted to give God their best. Not just the little, not just the what can we do to get by, but their very best. The Passover celebration that Jesus' family went to in the book of Luke shows us to live expectantly, celebrate what God does, and give God our best. And we're not even to the major part of the story yet. In Luke chapter 2, Verse 43, it says, And we were returning to Nazareth after spending the required number of days at the feast. The boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. Now his parents did not know this. They supposed him to be in the caravan and traveled a day's journey. And then they began searching anxiously for him around their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem looking for him everywhere. Three days later, they found him in the court of the temple, sitting among the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed by his intelligence and his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were overwhelmed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Listen, son, your father and I have been greatly distressed and anxiously looking for you. And Jesus answered, why do you have to look for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Why are you looking for me? So three days have gone past when, and they don't know where their son is. And in the New Testament, there are two times that the time frame of three days is mentioned. Both times, Jesus is seemingly absent. There's this passage here where Jesus has been separated from his family, hanging out in the temple for three days. The second time we see three days is after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. 
And both of these stories in the book of Luke are incredibly similar. They both have Jesus seemingly gone, and they both have panicked, freaked out, stressed out, scared people trying to figure out what's going on. Scripture tells us that after Jesus was crucified and buried, his followers huddled together, terrified of what was happening. And after they had been huddled together, terrified in fear, they sent women to the tomb where his body was to prepare it for burial. And these two stories both have women coming with a question. Because I'll say this, when God has a story to tell, the list of characters for thousands of years has always included women. And these women ask these questions when they get to the tomb and they find that Jesus is not there. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, you see these women find the angel of the Lord instead, who says this, Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you he was with you in Galilee. See, both of these stories have people thinking that Jesus is something. It has people freaking out, stressed out, frantic. And then when they come to Jesus, when they come to the angel the Lord has sent and ask the question about what is happening, they get the exact same answer. Why are you looking? See, Jesus was never lost. His parents felt like he should have been somewhere else, but Jesus knew confidently where he was supposed to be. You see in this narrative, Mary and Joseph find their son confidently sitting in the presence of the church leaders, soaking in all that he can about his father. And you see a 12-year-old Jesus when asked, hey son, where have you been? He calmly and confidently looks up and says, why are you looking for me? This is where I'm supposed to be. Not disrespectfully to his parents, but see what I think is that Jesus knew that if Mary and Joseph had slowed down and stopped to think, where would Jesus be? it might not have taken them three days to find him. Because they knew from the very beginning that he was God's son. So when he says, of course I'm in my father's house, why are you looking for me? I think Jesus is telling them, why didn't you slow down? Why didn't you look to God? Why didn't you think about where I would be? I do not believe in this passage of scripture that Jesus is being an angsty teenager. I think Jesus is confidently pointing out that he knows who he is, the son of God, and that he knows his purpose is to fulfill God's plan. Because Jesus talked about his relationship to the father, the father's plan, the father's glory, more than anything else he talked about. And you see, here you see this frantic family and this confident Jesus saying, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. In the narrative after the death of Jesus, you see panicked, freaked out, scared followers of Jesus who come to what they think is a tomb that should have a body in it 
And the angel says, why are you looking? He told you already. And you see, Jesus was very clear with his followers as to how this was going to go down. He said, I am going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead and buried. And on the third day, I will rise again. So when the women come to the tomb and the angel says, what are you doing here? He's reminding them that Jesus told you this was going to happen. And I think in both of these two narratives, we see Jesus saying, slow down. Slow down and look at things through spiritual eyes. You see, we've already seen that this passage is telling us to live expectantly, to celebrate what God does, to give God our best. But it is also telling us to slow down and look at things from a spiritual perspective. We know how to be frantic. We know how to freak out. We know how to worry. We know how to come to our kids and say, what are you doing? But do we know how to sit calmly and confidently in the presence of God and see things the way he does? And you see, there are a lot of stories that God doesn't give us about the life of Jesus. We have the birth of Jesus, a few little stories after that, and then we have this story, and then we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's 30. We don't know exactly how old Jesus was at the end of those birth narrative stories, but we do know he was 30. In that time span, there's some 10,000 days. So there are 10,000 days of Jesus' life left out of Scripture. I don't know why that is. I wouldn't presume to know why that is. But could it be that in the 10,000 days between his birth and his ministry, God gives us one story of his childhood for a reason? Could it be that all that God wants us to know about what it was like to parent a young Jesus about what a 12-year-old boy Jesus was like, that all we need is found in this one story. And that of his entire life, from birth to 30, we get one glimpse, one week of his life. And maybe it's because God wants us to see this one thing, this one thing that Jesus teaches us so confidently and calmly in Luke chapter 2. You see, there are a lot of places that Jesus could have been. And apparently there were tons of them because it took his parents three days to find them. And see, I think sometimes as parents, we read this story and we think, well, yeah, Jesus was hanging out at the temple. But there wasn't a lot of other things going on. He probably didn't have baseball and hockey and basketball and cello and all these other things. And so we dismiss the story because we think it's not applicable to our life. But I would argue this, if it took them three days to find him, isn't it possible that there were a lot of places that Jesus could have been? That his parents looked absolutely everywhere until they found him in the father's house? That Jesus could have been playing basketball 
He could have been at the market. He could have been around at Swing Around Fun Town, Jerusalem. I don't know where he could have been, but he could have been a ton of places. And Jesus says to us in this passage, of all the places I could have been, this is where I need to be. And he's teaching us to prioritize being in God's presence. He's teaching us not only to slow down and see things from God's point of view, but to prioritize being in the presence of God above all else. I have a 12-year-old boy, and I can tell you they like to be a whole lot of places. And Jesus is saying, I know who I am as son of God. I know my purpose, and I want to be in the Father's presence more than anything else. And I believe that God has given us this one story in Jesus' childhood So we would stop and say, do I prioritize being with the Lord, being in the house of God more than anything else? And mom, dad, I want to thank you for taking me to softball, for taking me to basketball, for taking me to baseball games, for taking me to student council. But I want to thank you most of all for caring about my relationship with God more than anything else else. It was the greatest gift you ever gave me. And a lot of you know that I spent many years leading mission trips in South Dakota. And my years in South Dakota was the scene for a lot of ridiculousness in a life full of ridiculousness. And one day, one of the most ridiculous of days in South Dakota, I was leading 100 kids on a mission trip And before we could leave for our mission sites, we were told we had to evacuate the building because there was a bomb threat. We were told it would be a few minutes, you can get back in, no problem. After a few minutes, they came back out and said, we're going to need to wait for a specific unit of the FBI. That's a whole other story for a whole other day. So we ended up spending all of the day outside, no keys to go anywhere, no food, no nothing. And finally, around dinner time, I convinced the FBI, which was not the first time that summer that I had to convince the FBI of something. Again, another story for another day, to let me go in and get my keys so I could go pick up pizza for these kids. And you see, we usually had a van and a pickup truck. But this particular day, we only had the pickup truck because the van had been set on fire. But again, we move on. So I had a pickup truck to pick up pizza for over 100 people. So I called the pizza place because I was really thinking. And I said, I'm going to need these pizzas super hot because I'm going to have to put them in the back of a pickup truck, take them about 20 minutes to feed 100 teenagers that have been outside on a lawn since 7.30 this morning. So they said, okay, get here at this exact time. They will be as hot as they can be. So I got to the pizza place, and it's pouring, absolutely pouring. And they said, do you have a tarp? I was like, no, that would be smart. So they said, we're going to have to shove these pizzas in the cab of this pickup truck. So they put them all on the seat, still didn't fit, all up the floorboard, and there were still about 10 left. So the only thing we could think of was to stack these 10 pizzas on my lap 
aside from an entire cab full of pizzas, for me to drive back to where all these kids were. And say, I don't know if you know anything about rain and South Dakota summers and a hundred some pizzas, but it was like driving a steam room on wheels. And I was sweating, and I was hot, and I couldn't see, and I had to roll down the window and look out the window in the pouring rain to drive my pizza bus back to these kids, and my legs were on fire. I had six, seven, eight, and I don't know how many pizzas there were, stacked up to the steering wheel, as hot as they could get a pizza, to drive it 20 minutes back to these kids. And for days, after this incident, I had these weird marks all over my legs. And people would ask me, how, how, what happened to your legs? And I would say, pizza. And people would look at me with this look that I'm very familiar with that communicates, there's no scenario of which pizza makes these marks on a person's body. And you see, I fully recognize that today's message is hard for some people because their reality is that their sons or their daughters or their loved ones don't want to hang out in God's presence. That of all the places they could be, they don't choose to be in the house of the Lord. And those people hear this message and say, there's no scenario of which my son or my daughter or my friend or my loved one is coming into a relationship with Jesus. But again, that's human thinking. Because there is no scenario in the human world where a 12-year-old boy should be alone for three days. But in God's world, it makes sense. There's no scenario in our world where someone wouldn't prepare a dead body for burial. But in God's world, it makes no sense because that body's not there. See, this book, this Bible, this scripture is full of story after story after story. That is not an ordinary scenario that leads to life change and rescue and redemption because that's the God we serve. And that's the God that desires more than anything else to spend time with you, that wants nothing else from a 12-year-old, from a 20-year-old, from all of us, is to spend time with him. And before Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit came and rescued his people out of Egypt, God said this to his people in Exodus chapter 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will free you from bondage. I will redeem and rescue you with an outstretched, vigorous, powerful arm. You see, God wants to reach out his powerful, victorious arm into our situation and rescue and redeem us. That's our God. And all of our situations seem bleak. The life that the Egyptians were in seemed bleak. Not knowing where your kid is for three days is scary. Watching your Savior and Lord crucified, dead, and buried is as bad as it gets. But God says, I am the Lord your God, and I will reach into your situation with my victorious and powerful hand. 
And you see, for those of you that mourn this message because that's not the reality for you or for someone you know, our church can come alongside you and be God's extension of a victorious, powerful, prayerful hand. There is a parent in our church that asks for prayer for her kid every single Sunday. It is on our prayer list for years. And our church will pray with that family and partner with that family until we can expect for God to move and celebrate together in this house. You see, God wants us to live expectantly and celebrate what he does and give God our best and slow down and see things from his point of view. But most of all, he wants desperately for you to prioritize time with him above all else. And my prayer is that we will be that kind of church, that we will partner with people, that we will pray with people who want to see their loved ones come into a relationship with Jesus. On the floor in this very building, under the carpet that we stand and worship on and that we will stand and worship on again is the names of people that our church loves that we want to see in relationship with God. And every time we're in this building, we're standing on those names, praying for those people, that God will find a way as only he can to reach into their situation with his victorious arm and lead someone into a life-changing relationship with him. Church, let's be that kind of church that partners together to lead people to Jesus, that partners with families and says, I want to be the spiritual aunt, the spiritual big sister to you as you raise these kids that Elevation Church would raise up a generation, generations of kids that when given every opportunity under the sun to go anywhere they want to go, would pick the presence of the Lord over all of it. The house of God is their number one place to be. And when asked about it, the kids of this house would sit confidently knowing who they are in Christ, knowing their purpose, and they would answer without hesitation, where else would I be? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that the people of Elevation Church, that the people watching us online, that we would strive to be a people who live expectantly, knowing that you are gonna show up in big ways, Lord, that we would be people who celebrate the things that you have done, Lord, that we would be a people who give you our best, that we would slow down and see things through your eyes, but Lord, more than anything else, Lord, I pray that we would learn to prioritize time with you above all else. There are some of you that maybe don't have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you've had a relationship with God and you've walked away from him and it's been a very long time since you've sat in his presence. And God is saying, I want to reach out into your situation and I have sent you a savior, Jesus, 
and he's asking you if you want that life that Jesus brings, that hope that Jesus brings, to simply say this prayer. And if that's you this morning, I ask you to pray this with me. Lord God, I need you. Lord God, I want you. Lord, I believe in your son, Jesus. I want to claim him as my savior and start a relationship with you. Lord God, please come into my life. Change my life. May today be the first day in my relationship with you. Amen. If that's you, if you've made a decision today to follow Jesus for the first time or to recommit your life to Jesus, we'd love to know that so we can support you in that, so we can come alongside you in that. So please let us know in the comments section or send us an email at hello at elevationstl.com so we can partner with you and celebrate with you that decision today. Yeah, we are so proud of you for the decision that you made. and. And uh, I just for a moment want to talk to you a little bit about giving. Uh, first and foremost, I want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you who have been giving so faithfully to the church. You know, the Bible says that, that where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And what that means is, is that many of you, your heart is in this house. And so thank you for all that you're doing uh, in relationship to giving. And so there's a simple way for us to do that. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to text Elevation FM Give to 77977 and go ahead and give that way. So many great things are happening right now in our church, locally, even nationally and internationally because of your faithful commitment to continue to give to the things of God. And so thank you for doing that. I want to pray for this offering in Jesus' name. God, I pray that this offering would be received, that it would be received by you, that it would be exponentially increased for your glory, and that lives would be changed, and that more and more people would be transformed by Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.